goes in on bringing our light to the darkness. Because we really see that happening here with these missionaries in Acts chapter 17. They are bringing God's light in a very clear way to those around them. And to me, this was just a challenge that as I walked away from this chapter, it was just a a challenge from God, a reminder to me of what is my what is my witness like? How clear is my light to those around me? Am I giving a very clear witness of who God is in my life? Of who Jesus Christ is? And we see that happening here in Acts chapter 17. In fact, I want to first of all go up to verse 16. Then we'll go back and we'll start at the beginning. But I, I wanted to start in verse 16. I want us to see the reaction of Paul here to the idolatry that he saw and was confronted with in Athens. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was greatly upset because he saw the city was full of idols. As Paul was there in this great city, this great ancient city of Athens, he saw all the idolatry and spiritual ignorance and spiritual darkness that was around him, that encompassed him. And the Bible says his spirit was upset. It meant a couple things. It meant that he was exasperated by what he was experiencing, but it also meant that he was stirred up. He was aroused. He was motivated to do something about the darkness. Because he knew that he had light that God had given him in his life. He knew that he had the light of God and the light of God's Word. And therefore, in a sense, it motivated him all the more to want to share it and to get that light out. I guess if there was one thing that I would like all of us to sort of walk away with tonight, it is this. Though we may live in a world of idolatry and live in a world of spiritual darkness and ignorance, don't be discouraged. Let the darkness around you, like Paul, motivate us and stir us and arouse us to shine our light in an even greater and clearer way. Because, obviously, in that ignorance and in that darkness... Light is needed. And now more than ever, God needs people who will be light. In fact, keep your finger there in Acts. We'll come right back to Acts 17 and go back to the Gospel of Matthew real quick. Because we can't talk about this without being reminded of these words of Jesus in Matthew 5. Beginning at verse 14. Matthew 5 verse 14. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city located on a hill cannot be hidden. See, God wants to put His people out in conspicuous positions and places, not so that we can be lifted up in pride, but so that His light can shine through us. People do not light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so that they can see your good deeds and give honor to your Father in heaven. Many times the reason why God allows us to even go through the suffering and trials and all of that that we go through is not so much uh, that it's obviously going to benefit us too, but that it's, a, it's an opportunity for us to shine the light of God out to others 
as they observe and watch how we go through things and how we respond to things and the hope and all of that that is in us, many times that witness, if you will, and that light is more clear-cut in times of, of affliction uh, than it is in, in the good times. And so what we have back here now in Acts chapter 17 is a group of people who are just so stirred up and aroused by the darkness and by the ignorance that, that's all around them that they just are so motivated to, to be that witness when the opportunity presents itself. So I hope that throughout this holiday season especially, we as Christians have so many wonderful opportunities, especially at this time of year, to point people to Christ and to remind people what Christmas really is all about. That's why this Sunday we start this five-week series just really reminding us all about what Christmas is really to be all about. And so it's a great opportunity for us, and I think God wants us to seize it. So let's go back to Acts chapter 17. Let's pick it up then in verse 1. We're going to see here tonight in this chapter that there are three primary places that God's witness is going in this chapter. Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. And we begin in Thessalonica. It says, after they traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Paul went to the Jews in the synagogue as he customarily did. And on three Sabbath days, he addressed them from the scriptures. Let's stop there. First of all, notice in verse 2, Paul went to them. Paul initiated it. Paul did not wait for those in darkness to come to him and to come to the light because people in darkness won't come to the light. The light has to go to them. I'll never forget what Dr. Howard Hendricks said many years ago. Bless his heart. He was one of the great Bible teachers of his ear. I remember him saying this. He said, there's not one command in scripture in all the word of God that commands an unsaved person or a person living in darkness to go to church or to come to light. But there are many commands in scripture throughout scripture for those that have the light to go to those in darkness. In fact, that's exactly what the Great Commission is. The Great Commission isn't, you all who need light, you come to the light. It's for those of us to, who have the light to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Teaching them all things that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the Great Commission. Go! And what you see happening here are people who have light, who are going. They're not waiting for people who are in darkness to come to them. They are initiating. They are going to them and giving them light. Now, they might not respond to the light in a positive way. And that's totally up to them. But at least we need to take the light of God to them. Paul went to the Jews in the synagogue. Then notice verse 2 also, as was his custom, he customarily did this. There's something to be said about forming habits and disciplines in our life. That's what this whole blog starting in 2015 uh, is going to be about. There's something good about a spiritual routine, not a spiritual rut, but a spiritual routine. And you'll notice here that by using this word customarily, what it's reminding of, this, this was Paul's custom. This is what he did. This is what he was used to. This was a habit of his. This was a discipline of his. This is where he would be. This is what he would do. There's something positive about that. 
And that's part of how we can be a light is where people know where we're at and where we're going and what our custom is, what our habit is, what our norm is. Again, not to get into a spiritual rut, but there is something positive about a spiritual routine that we see here from Paul's life. Notice also he addressed them, verse six or verse two, from the scriptures. He didn't give them his own opinions. He gave them the word of God, which implies the fact that he had to have an understanding of the word again before he could share the word of God with him. We're seeing here great principles from the life of Paul and these missionaries of how we can bring light to the world. And then it says, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, the Messiah. Notice something else here. We're going to talk about this when he gets over to Athens. One of the other great things that Paul did to be an effective light for Christ was that he was very familiar and would familiarize himself with his audience. He knew who his audience was and therefore he crafted and fashioned his message and what he would say based upon his audience. If you and I are going to be effective Christians, if we're going to be effective lights, if we're going to be effective servants and ministers for him, we've got to know who our audience is and meet them where they are. If we refuse to meet our audience where they are, then we will never connect with our audience and be able to bring them where we want them to go. That's exactly what Paul did. He knew he was talking to Jews here, and that therefore he knew that they had a, an understanding of the Old Testament. So he didn't have to go in like he did in, the, in Athens. He didn't have to give them a general knowledge about God. He already knew that they had a general knowledge of God in the Old Testament. What he needed to do specifically was to convince the Jews that Jesus, this Jesus, was their Messiah. That he was the one that the Old Testament predicted. And notice here, it says in verse 3, that he had to suffer. See, that was the real stumbling block for the Jews. To, to get over the fact that their Messiah, the Son of God, would have to suffer. That's why many of them missed his first coming. Because they could not get around that. That was a, that was a block for them, if you will. And But that's where Paul zeroed in on, because he knew who his audience was, and he wanted to give them light. And so notice here too, his message just centered around Jesus. Jesus had to suffer, and Jesus also rose from the dead, proving who he was. And notice, he did this from the scriptures. He explained and demonstrated. The word explain just means to open thoroughly the scriptures to them. The word demonstrate means to set it before them. It was like he took the Bible as you would a, a meal in a sense and he laid it out there for them to feast on. But obviously, again, before any of us can do that with someone, we've got to begin to familiarize ourselves with this as well, the truth in it, so that we can share that light with others. And can I say this? Very practically speaking, when God knows that we're willing to share the light that he gives us with others, he'll give us more light. Let me challenge you to do something. If you, I, I challenge you to begin to ask God for opportunities to share the light of Him and His Word with someone and see if you don't start stepping out and doing that if God doesn't give you more light as He sees your 
uh, desire to share that light with others. Because that's exactly what we see happening here. The more these people in the book of Acts were taking the light of God to others, the more light God would give them because he knew that this light wasn't going to stay with them but was going to be transmitted. In a sense, the baton was going to be passed to others. And we see them then bringing light into the darkness. Now notice verse 4 again. Some of them, not all of them, were persuaded. And we're talking about Paul here. Don't be discouraged when when people don't respond in a positive way to your witness, to your light. Not everybody is. But some might, just like with Paul and Silas. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. By the way, I love this word joined. It means to add to the team. It was like not only were they added to the body of Christ in a sense, they were added to the team now of witnesses who were going to continue to expand the witness and the light of God. I love that idea. And along with a large group of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women, Luke records. But the Jews, notice, became jealous. Those who did not believe grew in this envy, this hatred, this anger towards the apostles. And again, the book of Acts has been very clear about this too. When you and I seek to share the light of God with others and to take His light out there into the world, we're going to face opposition. We're going to face challenge to that. But God still wants us to take His light to the nations. So then He goes on saying, the Jews became jealous and gathering together some worthless men from the rabble in the marketplace. You can always find rabble in the marketplace. No matter what time in history you live, there will always be rabble in the marketplace. They formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. They attacked Jason's house, trying to find Paul and Silas to bring them out to the assembly, but they did not find them. They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, screaming, These people who have stirred up trouble throughout the world have come here too. Other translations say, Those that have turned the world upside down have come here too. That's a pretty accurate translation too. Because that's exactly what Jesus will do with people. He'll turn their world upside down. Literally in the Greek, it means to unsettle the mind. Now listen, God wants his children's minds to be settled. But any time that someone who doesn't know God or even one of his children is is not in a right relationship or fellowship with him, that He will seek to stir up and unsettle our minds so that we get to a place where we're so uncomfortable in our uncomfortableness that we do something about it. Because just like today, there are many people, even Christians, who have become comfortable in their uncomfortableness. They really don't like the place that they're in. They're not in a place where they're growing, where they're thriving spiritually, but they don't have the inner strength or the fortitude to do anything about it. Therefore, they remain comfortable in their uncomfortableness. God wants to make us so uncomfortable in our uncomfortableness that we're willing to do something about it and change. And that's what God will do to people. He will literally turn your world upside down because He loves us too much for us to stay in that place. And that's exactly what the people of God were doing in the book of Acts. 
They really weren't turning people's worlds upside down. God was turning people's worlds upside down through them. He was unsettling people and making them uncomfortable in their uncomfortableness so that they would do something about it. So that they would rise up and and be stirred and aroused to change what needed to be changed. Sometimes that's true in our lives. Sometimes we need to get so uncomfortable in our uncomfortableness that we finally are willing to do something about it. And that's what was going on here. But they don't like it. See, again, people get used to being comfortable in their uncomfortableness, and that's what was happening here. That's why they were so upset. You're stirring things up. You're challenging our beliefs. You're telling us this Jesus is the Messiah. That's just, leave us alone. We like being uncomfortable. Even though we're, you know, we're not happy. We have no joy. We have no hope. We have no peace. But we're comfortable in that uncomfortableness. Verse 7, Jason has welcomed them as guests, so that's why they were persecuting him. They were all acting against Caesar's decrees, knowing, saying there is another king named Jesus. Well, Jesus isn't only just another king, he's the king. The king of kings and lord of lords. And by the way, very interesting, this word king has a, has a meaning that means foundation. I love that. Basically, The foundation is Jesus. And He is our foundation. As solid as we might even think, say this floor is tonight that I'm standing on, this is nothing. This can be shaken. This can be shattered. This is not solid at all. But when you and I put our lives and stake our lives and place our lives on Jesus Christ, as He said, I'm the rock. And when you build your lives on me and my sayings, Jesus says the storms of life can come, all that can come, and you are standing on a rock and you are absolutely secure and stable because there is no other foundation other than Jesus Christ. He's the only real solid foundation. Everything else is an illusion. In fact, let me share this thought with you. All success apart from God, is an illusion. It's like a balloon floating to a waiting pin. Get that image in your mind of that balloon just floating towards that waiting pin. Eventually it's going to pop. That's what success apart from God is. It's an illusion. It's not real, because God is the only foundation the only stability, the only security. So they caused confusion, verse 8, among the crowd and the city officials who heard these things. And after the city officials had received bail from Jason and the others, they released them. So the brothers sent Paul and Silas off to Berea at once during the night. Paul was always escaping by night. Stirred up trouble in one city, he was going to another. As one of my mentors back in Bible college once said, everywhere Paul went, he either did one of two things. He either started a revival or a riot. So when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now notice the difference here in verse 11. These Jews were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they eagerly received the message, examining the scriptures carefully every day to see if these things were so. Bringing light to the darkness. Now, obviously, what we learned there in Thessalonica was some ways to effectively bring that light to the darkness, but we also saw how the darkness will rise up against the light. 
And that's why this contrast of light and darkness is used much throughout Scripture, because it really is a good metaphor for, in a sense, the battle between, you know, good and evil and all of that. But here now in Berea, what we see is, as they're bringing light to the darkness, there's people there that are much more receptive. And notice that Luke says it's because they were open-minded. They literally acted in a dignified manner. They were noble because they were willing to at least listen to what Paul and Silas had to say. We always need to be open to God and Him speaking to us in our lives. And hopefully, as we pray and seek the Lord's will to go out and be a light, that God will have prepared hearts ahead of time so that the people that we go to would be more like, say, the Bereans who were at least open-minded and reasonable enough to at least listen to us rather than shut us down immediately, like many of those Jews did in Thessalonica. The other thing I want you to notice is this. Notice that even though they were very eager to receive, in other words, ready, willing to embrace, they were teachable. That they didn't just take Paul's or Silas's or anybody else's word for it. No, no, no. Notice what the Bible says. They personally, carefully examined the Scriptures every day to make sure that everything that they were being taught was confirmed or affirmed in the Scriptures. That there was a continuity, a consistency, not only to what the Scriptures were saying, but to what they were being taught compared to what the Scriptures said. By the way, this word examining is an excellent word. It gives us a great picture of what was happening here and how we should approach the Word of God and how more people should approach the Word of God. These words were used for forensic investigation. It was, it was a way of, of describing people who would literally sift through the evidence. And we all know today, especially with all these you know, crime shows and stuff, and CSI that's been popular now for the last 20 years on television and stuff, we really have an understanding of that. We understand how even people like there in, in, in a secular job will go to a crime scene and literally pour over for hours every detail of that crime scene, sifting through evidence to, to try to find what the answer is to solve a crime. And that's exactly the kind of effort and mindset these Bereans were giving to the Word of God. See, they, they were literally pouring over and sifting through every detail of it. Oh, that people, especially skeptics, would do that. Because many of the skeptics that I've run into in my life who say things, you know, just parrot things that they've heard from others, like, well, the reason I don't believe in God or the Bible is because I think there's errors in there. Well, now, have you really found errors yourself? Or has someone just passed that along and you're just passing that along? Have you really went and examine the Scriptures for yourself and put it under a microscope and put it to the test? And have you done all that? And sifted through all the evidence for and against and come to a conclusion because my conviction is if someone is willing to do that, they will find out just how reliable and faithful the Word of God is. Because say someone like Elise Strobel that many of us knows, who has written books on evidence for the faith, his own testimony was, I was a skeptic. 
I was someone who believed that God wasn't real and that the Bible had all these errors until I was willing to go in myself and carefully examine the evidence. And as I was examining the evidence, I realized something. The evidence was in so much in favor of this being true rather than this being false. See, the problem today is you can't get enough people, even Christians, to devote the effort that it takes to sift through the evidence to really come to a deeper understanding and a more accurate, clear understanding of what God is saying to us in His Word. But that's what the Bereans did. That's the kind of approach God wants His people, I think, to take to the Word of God. That's why I've shared with you before, don't take my word for it. You go into the Scriptures yourself and you make sure that this is what the Scriptures are saying. That's what we all should do. I could move, or I could go on, but let's move on. So therefore, many of them, notice verse 12 though, believed, not all, but many after they put forth the effort to go in and find it for themselves, they came to faith in Christ, along with quite a few prominent Greek women and men. Verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica heard that Paul had also proclaimed the word of God in Berea, they came there to incite and disturb the crowds. They followed him. That's called persecution. Then the brothers sent Paul away to the coast at once, but Silas and Timothy remained in Berea. Those who accompanied Paul escorted him as far as Athens, and after receiving an order for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So we pick it up in verse 16 again where we started tonight where Paul is in Athens, and as he's walking around the city, he sees all of this idolatry, and it just stirs him, it arouses him of how much they need the light of God, and how he needs, and all of his Christian brothers and sisters need to be a very clear-cut witness to who God is. Now, this audience is going to be different than the audience in Thessalonica. So as we get into this, notice how now he crafts and fashions his message to fit the audience so that he can connect with them. He's not going to try to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. That's going to be lost on the Athenians. He needs to meet them where they are. By the way, it was very something that grabbed me as I was studying this and being reminded of it is note something. Athens was the city of intellectualism in Paul's day. And yet notice also that it was also the center of idolatry. I don't think that's by accident. The center of intellectualism, Athens, was also the center of idolatry. All right, verse 17. So he was addressing the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogue and in the marketplace every day, those who happened to be there. Also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him and some were asking, what does this foolish babbler want to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign, new, unheard of gods. They said this because he was proclaiming the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. There again, Even though he's going to meet them where they are, his message at its very core was the same. I'm going to tell them about Jesus and I'm going to tell them about his resurrection because that's the core of the gospel. Too many times we, you know, get off on so many side things. We've always got to bring it back to Jesus because that's where it really centers on. Jesus, give them Jesus. Make Jesus known to people. That's what we need to do this Christmas. Make 
known the Christ of Christmas. That's what Paul was doing in Athens. So they took Paul, verse 19, brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're proclaiming. The Areopagus, I would compare to like a modern-day think tank. It was a place where people got together, uh, their philosophers and whatever, and, and it was sort of like a spiritual religious think tank where they would all sort of share their own ideas about, you know, philosophy and life and spiritual things. So Paul's obviously a guest speaker there, if you will, an adjunct professor for a couple of days. May we know what this new teaching is that you're proclaiming. We want to become a little bit more acquainted with this. Verse 20, you're bringing some surprising things to our ears. Shocking is the word. Astonishing. So we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there used to spend their time in nothing else than telling or listening to something new. Boy, who, who knew you could get that gig? I don't know whether they got paid for that or not, but that's what they spent their day doing. Verse 22. So Paul stood before the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that you are very religious in all respects. That's not a compliment. <laughs> Again, because what? It all leads to idolatry. See, people can be very spiritual and very religious and very lost. That's what we're seeing here. In fact, sometimes the hardest people to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ are religious people. Because they have, in a sense, a spirituality within them or about them, but it's not true spirituality. Based upon the foundation of Jesus Christ, it is a false spirituality. And that's what was true here in Athens. For as I went around and observed closely your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship without knowing it, this I proclaim to you. This I want to make known to you. All he cares about is I want to make known to you who the real God is. Who the one and only true God is. In a sense, we could say we live in the same kind of spiritual atmosphere today. Many people don't know what they're worshiping if they're worshiping anything. And what they need more than anything else is just to know who the real God is. Is there a God? And who is he? And that's where the rest of these verses in chapter 17 can become such a template for us to use as well with others in our culture and society as well. So notice it says here, Therefore, what you worship without knowing it, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it. What's Paul's first statement about God? He's the creator. He's the creator. Our God, the one true God, he created everything. See, most people today don't believe that God created the world. That's why they're out there chasing that meteor with that space stuff because they're, they're saying that what we discover on that meteor that's traveling through that we sent that space probe out to to sit on while it's traveling through space, that's going to help us discover how the universe was started. Proclaiming themselves to be wise, they've become fools. God created the world. I don't need to send a, you know, get a billion dollars together and send some space probe out I know who created the world. God did. That's where Paul started. God created the world. He is also, notice, the Lord of heaven and earth. 
Not only does Paul want to proclaim to the Athenians that God is the creator, but he is the one who rules. He's the one who's in control of the universe that he created. That's what the word Lord means. And then using it, obviously, in context of Lord of heaven and of earth. Then he goes on to say, look, he does not live in temples made by human hands. He's above it all, beyond it all. Nor is he served by human hands as if he needed or lacked anything. He's self-existent. We depend on Him for our existence. He doesn't need anything else to be dependent upon. He exists within Himself. And then it says, because He Himself gives life and breath and everything to everyone. God is creator, God is ruler, God is provider and sustainer. God's the one that provides us with everything. God's the one that sustains us and gives us life. From one man, verse 26, he made every nation of the human race to inhabit the entire earth, determining their set times and the fixed limits of the places where they would live. The next thing Paul says is God defines us. We don't define God. God defines us. And in realizing that, what Paul's trying to get them to see and get every human being to see is just how inadequate and in a sense, finite and little we are. And hopefully, not that that discourages us, but as he's going to say next, that that would drive us to seek God, that there's something bigger and greater than us. Because as we look all around, do we really think somehow that, you know, we brought this about or whatever? Verse 27, so that they would search, seek after God, And perhaps grope. The word just means to touch and feel. It's as if, again, someone is sort of stumbling around in the darkness. And they're looking for anything. Here, for God. And he says they touch and feel around for him and find him, meet with him. Though notice Paul says in verse 27, he's not far from each one of us. God is also accessible. Yes, he is the creator. Yes, he is the ruler. Yes, he's the provider and and sustainer of everything. Yes, he's self-existent. But guess what else? He meets us right where we are. He has reached down to us and revealed himself to us. He's not far. He's not this God that you've got to like, you know, go through all this effort to get to, he's right there. All it takes is faith to call out to him. And he's right there. Then Paul goes on to say in verse 28, for in him we live and move about and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring made made in his image. So since we are God's offspring made in his image, we should not think that deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human skill and imagination. Therefore, although God has overlooked or looked beyond such times of ignorance, he now commands all people everywhere to repent, to change our mind and our thinking about God and who he is, and to stop going our own way and to start living His way. Because He has set a day, a firm, immovable date on which He is going to judge the world in righteousness. The next thing Paul reminds the Athenians about, God is not only creator and ruler and provider and sustainer and self-existent and all these other things, He's also the judge. We are accountable to Him And Paul says one day he's going to judge the world by his standards. 
not by anyone else's. Because he has set a day. And by a man whom he designated, having provided proof, offered proof to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul's saying to the Athenians what many apologists would say today to skeptics. Prove to me that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. I, I'll, be, I'll, I'll, I'll stop being a Christian. I'll, I'll forsake. You prove to me that Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead. Nobody can. And that's exactly where Paul hung his argument on. Much closer to the event than where we are now, 2,000 years later. Talking to some of the most intelligent men and women in the world at that time, at the Areopagus. So then he goes on. Now when they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some began to scoff. And there again, you're going to have that when you try to share the light of God with others. You're going to have people mock you, jeer, deride you. You're going to have some scoffers. You're also going to have this. But others said, we will hear you again about this. They don't just offhand reject. Others will go, you know what? You're giving me some stuff to think about. I want to think about it a little bit longer and consider it and ponder it and maybe talk to you more about it. You'll get some people to do that as well. And then every once in a while, you get some people to do this. So Paul left the Areopagus, but some people joined him and believed. You're going to have different responses. Not every is going to be positive. But the more we share the light, and the more we bring the light into the darkness, I think the more opportunity we have to see people respond. Because we should have faith in the power of God's Word and in the power of God to change and transform people's lives. That's how we came to Christ. Because someone told us about Jesus Christ one day and His love for us and His death on the cross for our sins and His resurrection from the dead. Someone shared that with us and brought that light into our lives. And we responded And there are others out there ready to respond as well. Among them were Dionysus, who was a member of the Areopagus, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. One other thing before we wrap this up tonight. I love this word joined here in verse 34. In the original language, here's what that word joined means. It means to cement to fasten together firmly or to cleave. In other words, it was a word that spoke about the fact that of of how close this, this band of brothers and sisters in Christ were, that when people joined them, they literally, in a sense, cemented themselves to this group. That's how close a fellowship, a spiritual family, they were building there. That, that's why we try to do what we do here. We try to get people to see that's the way God wants it to be, to, to, to join us together in such a strong bond. Cement our hearts, knit our hearts together. And that's exactly what you see happening here in the book of Acts. To me, Acts chapter 17 is a great example of God's people bringing light into the darkness. Whether it was in Thessalonica, Berea, or then in Athens, the center of idolatry. And 
it is my hope and prayer that that this chapter will continue to, as it did to Paul when he went through Athens, walked through that great city, that he was stirred, he was aroused to do something. It didn't discourage him to be in the center of such spiritual ignorance and darkness. It actually motivated him to shine his light even greater and clearer in the darkness in which he found himself. And it is my hope and prayer that we will respond the same way. That instead of getting discouraged about all the darkness and ignorance spiritually that we see around us, that we will rise up as the light And as Jesus says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the light you have given us will not just sit with us and stay with us, but God, that we will continue to grow and mature in our walk with you to the point where, Lord, we will be so aroused and stirred to shine light in this darkness, to bring the light of God to people who are sitting in darkness. Because God, your light is the light. It is the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by Him. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. God, I pray tonight that we will continue to be people of light, shining our light not only to our brothers and sisters in Christ, but especially, Lord, shining our light to those who are sitting in darkness, those who don't even know whether there is a God, or if there is, who is the real God? God, help us to be so clear in our witness that at least, God, They will know from us that there is a God, that He is real, that He does love, that He does change lives, that He can bring hope and peace and joy into people's lives if they're willing, like the Bereans, to be open-minded, reasonable, receptive, and teachable. God, give us opportunities. And especially, Lord, give us opportunities that as You give us more light, help us to take that light out to more and more people. And give us more opportunities to do that, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, thanks for being here. We'll see you on Sunday.